Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Conspiranormal Podcast proudly presents the Strange Realities Conference. Strange Realities. Come join us for one day of presentations on the paranormal with live music at night featuring Tim Banal, the rise and fall of the Flat Earth Theory, Joshua Kutchin, alien hybrid lore, Joe Damari, pushing the limits of reality, Guy Malone, Roswell 1947, what really happened, Timothy Renner, Pennsylvania Wild Man, and added to the lineup, Mark Anthony Wyatt, Cornish Legends and UFO Sightings, Zach Hunt, a presentation of his book on Rapture, followed by a live recording of the Conspiranormal Podcast, more speakers and music acts to be announced. Announced October 19, 2019, SIR National. Tickets and info at www.strangerealitiesconference.com. $40 at the door, $30 pre sale. This is Conspiranormal, where the nexus of conspiracy theory and the paranormal meet. We join the show already in progress with your hosts, Adam and Seraphiel. Welcome back to Conspiracy Normal, guys. Hey. Um, we are pretty much down to the wire. This is the last episode that you're going to hear before the Strange Realities Strange Conference Realities 2019. Conference. Yeah. So, but uh, we've got a special treat for you guys tonight, and this is one of our most frequent guests and one of our most favorite guests. Always a pleasure. Nick Redfern. Welcome back to Conspiranormal. Hey, Adam. Hey, Seraphiel. 
Adam. How's it going? Oh, very, very well. It's finally cooled down here. We're <laughs> oh yeah, finally. <laughs> Same here. Yeah, we're not we're not living in a furnace anymore uh, in early October, <laughs> but uh, it didn't it didn't feel like fall very much here in Tennessee. Yeah. But uh, um, so we're going to talk about your book, Flying Saucers from the Kremlin, and this is an interesting one because. We're basically talking about how UFOs and disinformation and how some of this disinformation came from basically the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. And I guess there's a little bit of vice versa, too, from us to them. But what um, what kind of sparked your initial interest in, doing the, in writing this book about this uh, Soviet connection to the UFOs and disinfo? Well, I think the first thing to point out, which I point out in the book as well, is you know there's no doubt in my mind that there's a real UFO phenomenon. Now, whether it's yeah. extraterrestrial or you know like multi-dimensional, extra-dimensional time travelers, you know I don't know, but there is there's no doubt in my mind there's a real phenomenon. But what's become clear over the years is that this real phenomenon has been sort of exploited and manipulated and used by intelligence agencies as a means to sort of freak out the enemy or push them down in different avenues and things like that. And so you have the real phenomenon and you have the fabricated stories for, um, you know, gain at the height of the Cold War, like when um, sort of us, you know, versus the Soviet Union and vice versa. And over the years, I I sort of picked up on a few stories like this where it seemed as if, you know, the Russians had created some fake stories to sort of try and freak out U.S. intelligence. We're talking about late 40s, early 50s. And the more I looked into this side of things, the more stories that I found that did sort of fit into that category. So that's basically the, the theme of the book is sort of Cold War era um, spy stories, counterintelligence, and, um, you know, that phrase that everybody knows in today's world, Russian meddling. You know? <laughs> right. so, um, Russian collusion, so, yeah. Yeah, so that, that's basically the theme of the book. It, it's not so much a book about the UFO phenomenon, but how intelligence agencies on both the East and the West use this real, this real phenomenon as a means to achieve a very sort of strange and bizarre goal. Yeah, and before we kind of get into all that, I think it's important to cover this idea that our CIA had, and I think they implemented some of this stuff, which is basically the exploitation of superstitions, quote-unquote, that they were going over like behind the Iron Curtain in the late 40s, early 50s, and they were doing a lot of things that kind of... um, to push this kind of like a spiritual kind of religious meme to the, to the people there and how some of that stuff was exploited. Cause I think that that is going to go into kind of the, also the religious aspect of ufology too. And religion over there was inherently political and against the political system. Yeah. That, that's right. Yeah. It's sort of very different to the situation over here, but, um, yeah, this, this RAND document that you're talking about that was um, published in uh, the late 1940s, 
and uh, <clears throat> written by a, a woman named Jean Hungerford who worked for the Rand um, uh, company. And basically, um, the the plan was to sort of create stories to suggest that, um, you know, God and Jesus, etc., were on the, the side of the Western world, and particularly the United States. And um, And the Rand Report talks about how totally fabricated stories were created to uh, along the lines of american troops seeing angels and the virgin mary following u.s tanks during the second world war (laughs) which wasn't true at all you know it was was just a fabricated story to try and lower um german morale and to essentially say you know that the the western world has supernatural beings on our sides which is why we're going to win and so you had that situation essentially created or expanded on by the Rand Corporation in the late 40s. And they realized that by just sort of tweaking a few stories here and there, which may have been real stories, they were able to create um, scenarios, as I said, where, you know, God and Jesus were on the side of the West and the Russians, you know, after the Cold War and the Germans in the Second World War had better watch out. And um, and from there, they realized that they could exploit other sort of supernatural phenomena, not just, you know, religious-based ones, but, um, you know, just about every side of the UFO phenomenon as well. When I was reading that in your book, I was wondering about, like, the... The miracles of Fatima, which I mean, that's 1917. But I was wondering about, like, you know, those the the last miracle, the last uh, revelation of Fatima, and how much that some of that could have been used by intelligence agencies. Well, I mean, it could have been. I mean, you know, this subject's sort of so weird and weirdly weird. You know, right. that um, you can never really rule out anything, and that's why I always say to people, you know, be totally open-minded on what you're doing and what you're researching, and try not to get too tied up in belief systems that might be sort of provoked and created to push you down one alleyway when you should be going down the other alleyway. So, you know, when it comes to this UFO, the Soviet UFO subject, I don't really rule out very much at all when it, when it comes to, you know, manipulation and playing with people's minds and, um, you know, trying to present scenarios that aren't real scenarios after all. And I I think it's an important aspect of the UFO phenomenon that a lot of people just simply don't realize how the subject and the phenomenon have been so radically manipulated by, as I said, by intelligence agencies. And, um, you know, it's just one of those sort of little-known aspects of ufology, but it was one of these little aspects that actually grew and grew and dictated, um, you know, particularly the, uh, the the contactee movements of the 1950s through the early to mid-60s. Right, yeah. And also, too, you mentioned in the book, um, and, and this is all our intelligence, or rather, I think this is British intelligence, but there's this weird kind of connection to the Flatwoods monster, that you talk about. Yeah. Yeah, this is one of the more controversial ones in the book, and um, and it's one of these things that caused me a lot of flack, but, I mean, uh, I don't care, you know, I've got thick skin. I'll, I'll say it <laughs> as I see it, you know, right. and tell it as I tell it. Um, 
But yeah, for people who don't know, the Flatwoods Monster story uh, revolved around a sighting in one night, uh, late one night in September 1952, where a bunch of people saw this strange light or object streaking across the skies and coming down um, on the other side of town. So they all headed out there and claimed to have seen this sort of 12-foot tall, not so much like a, an alien, how you might describe it, but like, um, like a metallic sort of jerky robotic type thing with these flashing lights coming from it and bright glowing eyes. And, and it was re it's, it's interesting because it's almost unique in UFO history. Nothing else has really been seen that sort of resembles the, the Flatwoods monster. And, of course, the whole group um, fled the, the hills and, you know, were gone out from the area in a few minutes, but none of them forgot what this thing looked like. Now, doing some research on this, I found that something that eerily sounded like the description of the Flatwoods monster was actually used in a British intelligence operation um, <laughs> in the 1940s in a program run by a guy named Jasper, excuse me, Jasper Maskeline. And he was someone who had like a really alternative, brilliant mindset where he'd come up all with these bizarre, weird ways to try and frighten the, the Nazis. And one of the plans that he had was to create this sort of 12-foot-tall, as he's described in the, in his, in the, um, in the files, like, um, like some sort of like a 12-foot-tall glowing scarecrow they would sort of trundle it through the woods and frighten the, the, the enemy, or try to. And if you read the story, it actually sounds, like I said, eerily like the Flatwoods Monster story, which surfaced just a few years after the war. So, you know, you have to wonder, was the Flatwoods Monster actually a real alien event, or was it Jasper Maskelyne's 12-foot-tall scarecrow-type thing um, you know, sort of putting the fear of God into anybody on the other side who happened to come across it. So do you think that the possibility that our military or some psychological warfare division was probably out there in West Virginia just, like, testing this thing to see what the reaction they could get out of it, out of people? Well, I mean, in relation to the sort of the answers to that question, what's interesting is that the locations where, where Maskelyne said the testing went ahead, he said what they basically did to ensure that not too many people found out, that so they would perform these experiments on the fringes of like little towns and villages mm -hmm. that were surrounded by forests and woods, where most people, you know, no one else would know about it. And... You know, Flatwoods is like a very little rural West Virginia town surrounded by um, hills and, you know, massive forests. And that's exactly the sort of location where Maskeline um, tested his 12-foot-tall robotic thing. Um, so in that sense, yes, you know, I think we could make a case that they were watching both areas. Um, but I have to admit as well, you know, the idea of a 12-foot-tall, clunking, glowing-eyed scarecrow being pushed down some, the roads of some, you know, little town in the U.S., right. that sounds almost as bizarre as the idea that the Flatwoods monster was really an alien, you know. So um, I have to admit, I think it can still go both ways. 
But, yeah. um, but you know, it is a very weird story. Well, that's the thing. It's like you, you, you we're saying that it is bizarre, but there are so many bizarre ideas. Yeah. And, and one of them was another one that I want to mention, too, is this. And this never got off the ground, I, thankfully. And I think this is part of our Operation Northwoods. I may be incorrect about that, but this whole idea to, like, stage the rapture in Cuba. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, that, that's another example where um, in the early 1960s, when in relation to Cuba, um, and Fidel Castro was perceived by the CIA as being the next big threat. And so they thought of all these different ways to get rid of Cuba. And, you know, there were these famous or infamous stories of, you know, China... Um, give him to, uh, like a an exploding uh, cigar. <laughs> he loves these cigars. Make so his plan, hair fall plan, out, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, make his hair fall out, and you know the cigar would blow his head off or whatever. But <laughs> um, the strangest um, plan that sort of semi got off the road, um, you know, but really didn't take off fully, and that was an operation that the CIA created where the plan was to fake a second coming of Jesus in the skies over Cuba. And the plan, basically, which was run by a guy named um, Major General Edward Lansdale, he was the guy who actually ran this program. And he, he wrote, after his retirement, he, he, ran, uh, excuse me, he wrote a couple of books about his experiences, which are sort of really intriguing and almost like jaw-dropping, you know, some of these bizarre stories that he got involved in. But with this one... The plan was to fly um, aircraft in the clouds over Cuba in small aircraft that would have their engines muffled and there would be these huge, powerful microphones um, that were basically, or essentially sort of, uh, broadcast the voice of, of Jesus, but it would actually be the voice of CIA agents saying essentially you know, renounce communism, renounce Castro and embrace the United States. And on top of that, they also had U.S. intelligence also brought in scientists and technicians who could, in, in essence, who could um, sort of um, project images of Jesus on the, on the clouds. And this would sort of tie in time-wise with these... Um, extremely loud, sort of loudspeakers and microphones broadcasting the voice of right. what actually was not Jesus. Um, Would they the got Orson Welles or somebody to do the voice of Jesus? Is that what <laughs> <Yeah>. would happen? <laughs> well, yeah, what happened was eventually the whole thing were, was cancelled because they couldn't guarantee that the, the clouds would be thick enough at the right time. They couldn't make sure that, you know, the the sounds from the engines of the aircraft wouldn't be muffled out enough. And so it was actually cancelled. But, you know, but it does demonstrate the sheer extent that, that some of these experiments went to. I mean, another one, in the very early days, uh, early uh, years of the Cold War, we're talking about um, so 1947, 48, you know, when the, the Russians were becoming the, the big problem after the Nazis. Well, the Germans began to sort of seed these rumors and stories that they had got agents all across the U.S. who had smuggled atomic bombs 
into the US and that like New York, LA, Las Vegas, Boston, Dallas, that that atomic bombs had been carefully and secretly placed in all these US cities and maybe even more, and that at one point they were all going to be detonated at the same time. Now, thankfully, this didn't happen for two reasons. One, because it actually was never, it wasn't true that the the uh, Russians had never had the ability to, you know, sort of secretly get into the United States with atomic bombs and place them, you know, in like 10 or 12 cities. But... What happened was that the FBI got really worried and disturbed about this, and they spent literally years trying to track this story down and trying to figure out where these bombs were. And it turned out there were no bombs. There were no agents who'd infiltrated the U.S. The whole point was to direct the FBI from legitimate intelligence-based programs and have them chasing these fabricated tales of atomic bombs. So... Again, you know, there's a lot of weird stuff going on that involves plausible scenarios that actually turned out to be complete lies, you know, but but driven by the idea to to try and um, freak out the mindset of the enemy. Because all you got to do in psychological warfare is just like sow that seed of oh, doubt. Yeah. That's all you really have to do. And one of the, um, the there is, I think. A good case of actual, when I just thought of this, was of using uh, religion, re- religion as psychological warfare. I mean, that's the the Phoenix program and the Wandering Soul recordings in uh, Vietnam. Oh yeah, I mean, I mean, Vietnam. The Vietnam War was sort of ripe again for this kind of thing. You know, just um, trying to find ways to, you know, affect the mindset of the North Koreans and. Um, one of the things they did um, was to leave um, playing cards of the Ace of Spades yeah. Yeah. Um, around the bodies of um, the North Korean soldiers who were killed because that was sort of perceived as like a, like a supernatural kind of threat almost. So, um, you know, a lot of, lot of effort went into sort of altering the mindsets of whole swathes of people just as a means to to try and create a sense of fear out of something that if they'd looked further they would have found didn't actually really exist you know but it, it was just the thought of it all yeah. you know i mean i can remember this has nothing to do with russia but i mean i remember because i live just outside of dallas but um you know just um, just a few years ago mm-hmm. um when there was a, a an outbreak of oh god what was it Ebola. Um, Ebola, yeah. Three people. That's right, yeah. Yeah. And it was like in the whole Dallas area. And within literally days, you know, people were saying that Dallas needs to be cordoned off, you know, and um, be placed under sort of emergency situation. It was almost like the walking dead come to life, you know what I mean? Like the city's got to be blocked off, that kind of thing. And that, that had nothing to do with the Russians, I should stress, but what it did demonstrate was how quickly hysteria and fear got whipped up because of this whole Ebola thing in Dallas. And, you know, you, I, you know, I followed this locally, obviously, I, I live just outside the outskirts of Dallas. And it really was, you know, kind of like um, martial law, 
you know, containing the cities, don't let anyone in, don't let anyone out, you know, otherwise the whole country's going to go down. <laughs> and then, yeah. you know, it, it died off in a few weeks' time, and, and then everybody, you know, forgot about it and turned their attentions to American Idol or whatever. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and so, so the same way that we found utility, especially in manipulating the remnants of religious belief in the communist world, you you argue that they really uh, they were able to use the UFO phenomenon and the contactee movement to try to manipulate us in the same way. Well, yeah, this is where I guess in in the book the story kind of really kicks off. Now, the the whole sort of modern era, if you like, or it's not so modern now though, but um, you know the modern era of ufology largely sort of kicked off in the summer of 1947 with the Kenneth Arnold encounter over Washington State in June 1947. You know, and um, and he ba- Arnold basically said these objects he saw flew like a, a saucer would fly if you skipped it across a body of water. And that's actually how the term flying saucer was created. It was actually nothing to do with the, the shape. It was the way they kind of, like you would bounce a pebble across water, you know, when you're playing in a pool of water when you're a kid, that kind of thing. And um, so the the Russians realized that here was a subject, a mystery, that was really intriguing the U.S. public and the media and the military. And so they thought, well, maybe we can use this in the same way they kind of used this bogus atomic bomb story. And um, so... What we find is a number of the early contactees, people who said they were in contact with very human-looking aliens in the early 50s and who claimed that they wanted us all to um, lay down our nuclear weapons and so on. A lot of the contactees said that um, at least some of these so-called space brothers, as they were known, uh, kind of like uh, Michael Rennie's role in The Day the Earth Stood Still, like sort of um, benign aliens who want to help us. Well, it turned out that a lot of the early contactees who were put in these sort of positions said that the aliens they met and who wanted us to lay down our weapons and live in peace, a lot of the contactees said the aliens they met had communist-type governments right. and uh, and a state, a sort of state of life, if you like, and um, one of the ones who really promoted this sort of the aliens are communist angles was George Adamski, who was one of the most famous, if not the most famous, of all the contactees. And now his first book that came out, it was um, co-written with a guy named Desmond Leslie in 1953. When that book came out, you know, it sold in the region of about um, 125,000 copies, which, you know, which is a hell of a lot of books to sell on UFOs. Um, and basically what happened was that not only was his book selling, as I said, in six figures, uh, Adamski, but also he was uh, sort of getting massive audiences at his lectures and conferences, and he was also spelling this story out of, you know, the Russians are communists and communism is good. Now, if the if the FBI, who followed Adamski very closely, if the FBI was found out that Adamski, you know, his book had sold five copies and he was just telling it to sort of seven or eight people on a Sunday afternoon in a library with, 
you know, five people and somebody's cat and dog, you know, the FBI wouldn't have cared. Yeah. But the fact that he, you know, his first book sold 125,000 copies and he was speaking about how communism was good and the aliens <laughs> are communist. Right. That's where the FBI got really concerned. And that's why they opened an extensive surveillance file on George Adamski, which has now been declassified by the FBI. They've, they've placed it in the public domain now. And it actually runs to just under, just under 400 pages. That shows the sheer extent that the FBI followed just about every word that Adamski said. And one of the big concerns was that because Adamski was saying that, yes, you know, the aliens were communists. The FBI were worried that Adamski was, although he was living in the U.S., the fear was that he would be sort of hired by the Russians mm -hmm. to specifically claim that, you know, the aliens were communists and, uh, and to try and spread it more and more. So, you know, the Russians kind of had this, uh, I hate to say, but, you know, they were sort of a little bit ahead of us when it came to you know, trying to um, affect the, the mindset of mm. um, the Russians. You know, they, they, they were on to it much quicker in terms of trying to um, sort of affect the Western mindset. When you have that idea of, of uh, you know, determinism in Marxism and this, you know, going towards a, a, a futuristic society would be, you know, in our conceptions, a, a post-scarcity uh, society. So naturally it kind of... You know, lends itself to some kind of super organized state system or something like that. Yeah, it's 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 Star Trek, the Federation, yeah. basically everything's taken care of. So, yeah. in the backdrop of the Cold War, while we had God on our side, they had they had the Space Brothers. Yeah, yeah, and and Adamski, <laughs> the space comrades, Adamski too. I mean, he, <laughs> exactly. He, I mean, he made comments. I mean, out flat out comments as you as you point out in the book that you know he actually said russia will dominate the world yep that's what he said yeah and um but he was lucky not to get sort of arrested for you know sort of dissent or something like that you know but um but i think the fbi's mindset was not to sort of reel him in and arrest him and you know say why are you saying this i think the approach they took well, I know the approach they took was basically to just carefully and closely watch him, you know, to see who he was talking to, but more importantly, who was talking to him, mm -hmm. you know. And there, were, there are rumors or stories in the files about Adamski having been seen in downtown L.A., because he lived in California, mm -hmm. but he'd been seen in L.A., um, actually talking to Russian people. Uh, now, who those Russian people were, we don't know, and the files don't fully explain uh, who they were either. But the files do make it clear that um, these rumors were flying around that um, Adamski had Russian sort of cohorts buried somewhere deep in Los Angeles. It's interesting to me that Adamski as a Pole wouldn't, would be so cozy with the Russians because, you know, I mean... Mm. Especially at that time, I mean, the, 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 there's not a lot of love between the two. Well, yeah, you're right. I mean, one of the people I spoke to uh, while I was writing the book, and um, who very generously shared his time, uh, was a guy named Colin Bennett, who wrote a book um, all about Adamski and his experiences. And unfortunately, 
excuse me, but Colin died just a few years ago, but um, he he generously gave me an interview, and he came to believe that um, in relation to this whole situation, when you talk about, you know, the that being a Pole, that he wouldn't be sort of very, you know, open to, to Russia and so on. Kevin, excuse me, Colin felt that what Adamski was doing was trying in a very skewed way to try and bring the world together under one mm. government. Mm -hmm. But he crossed the line by making that one government communist, you know. <laughs> right, right, um, yeah. Well, he might have been a communist and anti-Soviet also, though. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, that's one of the, the sort of difficult parts of this story, sort of, you know, 60 years later, you're trying to put the whole picture together. But uh, but Colin did believe that Adamski felt, regardless if he was lying or creating stories, he felt that if he could achieve a goal for the better good, it was worth lying and spreading bogus stories. That's that's So, in other words, he wasn't like a faking for money or fame he was faking to try and prevent the world as he saw it from ending up in like a nuclear inferno that that kind of thing so let's talk about orfeo angelucci because this is super mm -hmm. interesting i mean here's another contactee um and i think the thought is here the possibility that he was also being investigated and there's some maybe like little mind control things going well, on with yeah. this. Yeah, you're right. I mean, the story of Angie, excuse me, Orfeo Angelucci is in many ways even more sort of astounding and weird than the, the tales of, of George Adamski. Now, there's no doubt that Adamski was sort of the primary one of all the contactees. You know, he, he was number one. And then there was sort of George Van Tassel and George Hunt Williamson. I don't know why the aliens tended to pick up on George's all the time, but apparently... George <laughs> King was the other one? <laughs> yeah, George King, yeah, yeah, of the Ethereum Society. Yeah. But um, that is kind of like one of the weird things that so many of the contactees were, <laughs> were named George. But um, <laughs> but but anyway, um, but then you had this sort of second level of the contactees who were well-known on the, you know, the lecture circuit. They'd written a couple of books, but they weren't anywhere near the scale of Adamski. You know, they might be selling, you know, 200 copies of their books at this conference and 50 at that one, and you know, that that was the scenario. Now, Orfeo Angelucci was someone who was also sort of approached in like a Soviet fashion, so to speak, when he started to get bigger and bigger, and he became more and more visible and well-known on the lecture circuit, and particularly so out at um, Giant Rock in California. Now, Giant Rock is um, just outside the town of Landers in California, not too far from Joshua's uh, tree. Yeah, I got to go uh, there about a year or so ago with uh, Greg, oh, cool. Greg, and, Greg Bishop and uh, Walter Bosley took me out there. Oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah Greg's a good friend of mine, and... and um, <laughs> excuse me and walter as well and um you know that they know the area and the history you know sort of like the back of the hand um but yeah the the whole scenario sort of of uh, the contactees took up massively when george van tassel began to put on these um regular events out at giant rock and for people who don't know it's called the area is called giant rock because it's 
dominated by this huge hulking giant rock and um and that's where van tassel said that he had his encounters with the aliens now um orfeo angelucci was invited regularly to speak at the giant rock events now if you go to a ufo gig today you're probably going to get somewhere between 300 to maybe 500 on a good day in terms of audience numbers. You know, that's, that's sort of pretty much the amount. Um, back in the 50s, out at Giant Rock every year, George Van Tassel got figures in the approximate number of about 11,000. Now, yeah, It was kind of like Burning nobody, Man of its day, in a way. You know, it, yeah, yeah, I kind of describe it as like a cross between Burning Man and Lollapalooza. That's the best yeah, way I can yeah. describe it. It's sort of like... Um, it was lectures and speeches from the from the speakers, from the contactees, but it was also just like a, a meeting of friends and minds, and you know everybody would come in the cars and hang out and bring food and drinks, and there'd be you know people telling about their experiences, but also you know it, it was more sort of a like a get together, and there were people playing music and things like this, and so. You know, you, you can make a good case. It was like a cross, you know, like Burning Man and Lollapalooza, that kind of thing. Um, sounds like the Strange Realities Conference <laughs> coming up here in Nashville. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. That's right. Minus about 10,000 something people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, what happened was that just like Adamski, um, Angelucci found himself on a several occasions approached by what he described as people with foreign accents and who kind of really put the heat on him and basically said, you know, we want you to keep telling the stories that you're telling, but we also want you to put like a communist spin on who the aliens are and why they're coming here and why communism is so great. Now, unlike Adamski, who went straight into it, Angelucci sort of said, not just no, but hell no. And he actually contacted the FBI and said, you know, these people have contacted me on several occasions when I've been lecturing. And, and this was particularly going on, not just at Giant Rock, but when he was speaking on the East Coast of the U.S. at various conferences and events. And he said, I'm very worried that these people are communists or they're Russians um, and they're trying to forced me to slant my stories around communism. And the FBI, you know, they opened a file on Angelucci, but it was not a file like Adamski where the FBI was sort of like pissed by Adamski, you know, they they just loathed him. But with uh, Angelucci, they were actually appreciative of the fact that he'd approached them and told them. So they did open a file on him, but it was for, you know, like a very different reason to... Adamski. Now, what happened was that he would have these visits or these people would come up to him now and again and warn him in this sort of, you know, like a, quote, friendly threat, you know, that kind of thing. The sort of, off you can't, you know, uh, say no to. Um, Angelucci fell. Now, on one occasion, out at um, Twenty Parks, uh, Twenty Square, Twenty Pines, out in California, one particular night, he he went to a, a diner there, sat down, and this 
guy turned up, sat opposite him, looked very human, nothing strange about him at all, but introduced him as someone who knew exactly who Angelucci was. And, um, and this guy, um, who used the name of Adam, which almost certainly was just like an alias or something, and this guy, alias, excuse me, Adam said, um, you know, I can help you, I can tell you all the answers that you need about UFOs and your encounters, but to do so, you've got to take this pill first. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like the classic scene in The Matrix, you know, do you take the blue pill or the red pill, you know? Right. And, um, and that was kind of the quandary that um, Angelucci was in. And... You know, I mean, in the year, I should I should say, over the years, you know, I've done some stupid things, but I've never actually swallowed a pill from someone I don't know, <laughs> and I've no idea what the thing is, you know. Usually no I have done some stupid, stupid, stupid things, but that, that wasn't one of them. And, um, but what's interesting is that Angelucci said that very shortly after he took this pill, which he just swallowed, you know, he just chugged it down with a drink, um, within about 15 minutes, he started to feel kind of weird and, and just strange. And then he said the, the room itself, the, the, the colors in the, in the, in the uh, diner became more and more vibrant. And then he said he could see like this little ballerina dancing in, the gla in a glass on the table. So he'd clearly been hit by something, you know, whether it was something like LSD or whatever it was. It's important to know this was the exact time frame when the CIA was working on its MK Ultra mind control and mind manipulation programs. Right. And the, the more and more that Angelucci got plunged into this sort of spaced-out, screwed-up situation... Um, he began to realize, um, before he got sort of full blown into this, you know, strange state of mind, he realized that this guy, Adam, was far less interested in essentially, you know, telling Angelucci what the aliens wanted and so on. But it was more along the lines of this guy, Adam, was asking Adamski, excuse me, was asking Angelucci all about his experiences and um and in this um sort of trippy state um angelucci just reeled it all off you know these guys met me they met, met me here they met me there they asked me to say this they met, uh, got me to say that and what's interesting is that all the time this guy adam was interrogating angelucci while he was in this drug state there were two um u.s um soldiers um, essentially just sitting at the next ch uh, table, staring intently at both of them, uh, almost as if, you know, they were sort of just watching the situation in case it turned badly, you know, and he overdosed or freaked out or whatever. Um, but what's particularly notable is because when I first learned, if you like, of Angelucci's story, you know, it's, and the time frame, it sort of really struck me, well, this was like some sort of MK Ultra kind of thing, you know. This had nothing to do with aliens. And I tried to get hold of the uh, FBI file on Angelucci. Now, as I said, the FBI have released the Adamski file 
which is just over 400 pages of surveillance papers. And uh, Van Tassel's file, I think, is 398 pages or 397. So that's that's pushing 400. Albert Benders was like 70. Um, George Hunt Williams was about 80 or 90. And so, and I, and I managed Jeez, to get... You investigated all these guys. Yeah, I, yeah and I, that, all of them were being watched. And I managed to get all those files. The only one I could not get was the Angelucci file. And the FBI has now gone on record as saying that they actually destroyed the Angelucci file in 2009. Now, that, that's not hearsay or rumor. That's, that's in, in writing. They said, well, we destroyed it, you know, back in 2009. So, unless... There was a second copy made. We'll never really know what the Angelucci file said. But there's no doubt in my mind that even if he had genuine UFO encounters, which ironically, I actually think he did. Right. I think he did have real experiences. Right. But Same here. it was kind of tainted by the fact that the whole MK Ultra aspect and fabrication and hypnosis was brought into it as well. And so, you know, the whole thing becomes like a really strange scenario of, you know, mind-controlled interrogation to try and find out if the aliens really are communists, you know. So, so basically, they, they pretty much roofied him. And then secondly, they're using it as a form of, like, truth serum to get this information from him. Yeah. Yes. I mean, Whatever it was. Yeah, that's actually one of the int very interesting parts of the FBI's involvement. You know, they weren't really writing off what the contactees were saying. I mean, if you read the files on, like, particularly Van Tassel, um, the files talk about how, you know, the, um, the, the, the aliens were sort of described by the FBI in their files in a very matter-of-fashion style. You know, it wasn't like this man's a liar... And, you know, we need to sort of go over there and warn him to stop what he's doing. It was more along the lines of, well, this is what he said, you know, and he thinks this and he thinks that. And it really was like a, a down-to-earth, matter-of-fact style. So they were quite open to the idea of that these people were telling the truth. But what concerned the FBI was the political aspect of all this and how politics could impact on ufology and in a worst-case scenario, not just politics, but, but Russian politics as well. Let's get to a couple of, because I want to talk about the MJ-12 stuff, but before we do that, I want to get to the Project Serpo documents. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Because that, in and of itself, and this is later, I mean, this is after the fall of the Soviet Union, but there could be some connection to the Serpo material and possibly to the to some kind of disinformation campaign coming over from Russia. Well, yeah, I mean, for people who are not fully aware of the Serpo story, um, it goes back actually more than a decade now, and it, it purportedly talks about a real-life version of the what we call like the final uh, scenes of Close Encounters of the Third Kind, when you have yeah. these this group of astronauts all going off to a faraway world and there's like a group of aliens who come out this massive UFO and they stay here, that kind of thing. So Serpo is very much like, you know, the, the, the final stages of close encounters. And the theory is that possibly, 
you know, the government may have sort of impacted on the on the production even of close encounters. Now, it was sort of 10 years or so thereabouts when the whole Serpo story surfaced with these documents, controversial documents, because they weren't officially declassified. You know, it was almost almost like an Edward Snowden scenario. You know, somebody on the inside had supposedly leaked these documents about these American astronauts sent to this faraway world, and then they come back and some of them are dead and some have gone insane and just could not, you know, deal with being on another world, you know, with other beings and things like that. And very strange situation. Now, one po- at one point, when the whole Serpo thing was at its height, um, a guy surfaced who claimed to have worked in the British uh, Ministry of Defence in the late 1960s, and he said that he knew that the documents were real in the sense that they were created by both British and US intelligence working together. But he said, although the documents were real, the story that the, the documents told was not real. In other words, you know, that they really did have like the CIA and MI6 in the UK putting these files together, that they really did create them. But they were fabricated, you know, they didn't tell a real story. And this guy who said that he worked for British intelligence said that the actual person who who wrote the Serpo documents, was a woman named Alice Bradley Sheldon. Now, Alice Bradley Sheldon, her husband as well, um, were both employed in the 1950s and 60s by the CIA. And they got, both of them got, you know, involved in all sorts of espionage operations and spying programs and things like that. But the important thing is that as well as being a CIA officer, Alice Bradley Sheldon was also a sci-fi writer, and she wrote under the um, the alias of um, a, a guy named Robert, excuse me, uh, James Tiptree, excuse me. And that was basically the the scenario. You had this woman, Alice Bradley Sheldon, um, who was a sci-fi writer and an employee of the CIA. She would have been arguably the the, the best person, you know, to sort of um, create and con- or concoct is probably a better term, these documents. You know, when you've got a, a CIA case officer who happens to write science fiction about aliens, the story is that she was hired to write these documents as a means to frighten the Russians into thinking that we had done a deal with aliens. Now, what's particularly intriguing, you know, you mentioned the Majestic 12 documents um, earlier. Well, both, um, uh, excuse me, both Alice uh, Bradley Sheldon and her husband both died in May 1987, which was the very same moment when um, the original MJ-12 documents surfaced. What happened? Well, what happened was that both Alice Bradley Sheldon and her husband were in bad health. And one night she shot him in the head while he was sleeping and then she killed herself. But, you know, I do find it interesting that the time frame was literally within days of when the MJ-12 documents first went public. So it makes me wonder, you know, if she did that as a means to try and prevent, you know, the whole 
MJ12 and Serpo thing coming out, you know, because I do wonder if she did create the uh, MJ12 documents as a means to try and, you know, affect the Russians, or maybe she wrote the MJ12 documents as well. So, I mean, but then you have, as I talk about in the book, you also have US intelligence who, for a while, thought that the MJ12 documents were the work of the KGB. Right. Or maybe it was a combination. You know, this is where things kind of get really sort of strange and, um, you know, going off in different strands and angles. Well, I guess let's dive into Majestic 12 then. Yeah, because this this gets really convoluted. I think my first exposure yeah, was through uh, <laughs> Bill Cooper's book. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, and I, I've seen well, some. I've seen some of them because uh, uh, Peter Robbins has them. He's got some. You know, he's got them like in binders in his house, and I've looked through some uh-huh. of them. Some of them. Oh wow. Uh, well, I guess for for people who may not be familiar with it, though, most people into ufology probably are. But can we give a basic basic background on on the the different sets of these and uh, how they're all kind of related. The MJ-12 documents, you mean? Yes, sir. Yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah, well, for people who don't know, uh, most I'm sure most people in ufology and most people listening have heard of the MJ-12 documents or the Majestic 12 documents, however you want to put it. Um, and it all goes back, really, to the late 1970s. And this is when Charles Berlitz and Bill Moore um, started to, and, and Stan Friedman, the three of them started to dig further and further into the, the Roswell story. Now, although Roswell occurred in 1947, it had largely been forgotten until the mid to late 40s, excuse me, the mid to late 70s, when uh, Stan Friedman and Bill Moore started to look into it more and they started to sort of pull all their efforts together uh, to try and figure out, you know, did an alien craft and the bodies, you know, crash down at Roswell. And um, by 1979, the amount of data collected by Stan and by Bill Moore was was enough to finally put a a book together. And in 1980, the Roswell incident, which was co-written between Bill Moore and Charles Berlitz was published, and, and Stan got like a big um, acknowledgement for allowing his work to be used. Now, in the wake of the publication of the Roswell incident, um, Bill, Bill Moore, started to get weird calls and communications from people in the intelligence community who wanted to meet with him. And over the, over the next few years through to the early to mid-80s, um, Bill was approached by various figures, very often like old guys who sort of, you know, sort of came across like, you know, sort of long-time people working in the intelligence community, and they would share with him controversial documents about UFOs and aliens that could have been the real deal, that might not have been, we don't know. Um but the most significant collection surfaced in the um, the mailbox of a guy named Jamie Chandere. And Jamie Chandere was a friend and colleague of Bill Moore. They were working together after Berlitz um, left it all behind. And they looked into it further and further. And one particular day, there was this um, sound of like, um, you know, the uh, the mailbox being opened. And so um, Chandra went to the door and there was this manila-type envelope. They opened it and 
there was like a collection of negatives of what looked like documents. So they, you know, they, they um, essentially printed the pictures off and dug into it. And the documents talked about this super secret group within the U.S. government called Majestic 12 or for sort of um, in abbreviated form MJ-12. And supposedly it was a group of high-ranking people in the military, the government, the intelligence community, whose job it was to hide the truth of Roswell and alien autopsies and UFO crashes, all this kind of thing. And so in 1987, um, Timothy Good, an English uh, researcher and ufologist, had also obtained some of these documents under circumstances which 32 years later we still don't know how Tim got those copies but Stan, but Stan uh, Bill Moore and Jamie Chandray were very concerned that if they didn't go public now then Tim would blow the you know the the whistle and get all the acclaim and so on so what happened was that um, Stan Jamie and Bill put out their copies of the documents and then shortly after Tim Good put out his copies in his May 1987 book uh, Above Top Secret. Now the big question is of course like with the Serpo documents and even like those Russian um, you know, plans and documents in the late 40s about bogus atomic bombs, you know, placed um, in different places in the United States. Uh, the big question was, are these the real deal? Now, a lot of people in ufology um, bought into the MJ-12 documents. I mean, Stan Friedman, you know, Stan to his dying day, just, a, you know, a few months back, um, Stan was a full-on believer um, in the MJ-12 documents. And although me and Stan you know, disagreed on this, again, right up, you know, to the last time I saw him, which was um, in January 2019, you know, even though we disagreed, you know, I remember we had like a really fun day just chatting, you know, not even about UFOs, just, and I'm glad, you know, I kind of had that last chat with him, you know, um, but Stan was someone who you could disagree with him, but you could also sit around and talk about just anything else beyond UFOs as well. And so, you know, Stan was a full-on believer in MJ-12. Um, now, Jamie and Bill, they wrote the, their own um, report in 1990 where they admitted, you know, they weren't sure if the documents were real or not. But what's particularly notable is that um, when the documents surfaced and they were perceived as being like sort of fake, excuse me, as being documents that had been... Um, have stolen, you know, and um, or that they've been leaked again by like an Edward Snowden type. When this story got out, the FBI opened an, an investigation because they were concerned that despite the sensational nature of the documents, the FBI was still concerned that these documents, if they were real, had been declass had been released uh, unofficially, you know, illegally. Kind of like again, like Snowden, you know, leaking all these documents. It was sort of that scenario. Now, the FBI came to three different theories. One, well, they may be real, you know. The other one was the idea that they were not real, but it was the idea of somebody's hoax. Or the third scenario was the idea that the documents were created by the what used to be in Russia, in the Soviet Union, the KGB. 
which doesn't actually exist now, but he has, you know, it's, it's been replaced. Um, and when they looked further and further into the issue of MJ-12 and the KGB potentially having a connection, what the FBI found was that there were... Now, this is, this is listed in the Freedom of Information documents, but names, what I'm going to say now, names aren't mentioned in the documents. They're deleted. But the documents talk about how, in the late 70s and through the 80s, there were a number of people working in the field of top-secret U.S. Air Force and aerospace programs but who also had a deep interest in UFOs. And the theory the FBI had was that the, the FBI was concerned that the Russians, the KGB, would approach these people who were working in aerospace programs in the US and who also had an interest in UFOs. The, the FBI was concerned that the Russians would co approach these American citizens and say, basically, look, we'll give you these MJ-12 documents which talk all about Roswell, all the things you want to hear, and in return, you'll give us information on, our, on the U.S. stealth bomber and the stealth fighter. So it's kind of like a classic dangling carrot kind of situation. You do something for us, we'll do something for you. And, of course, the actual goal of the Russians was to get as much from U.S. intelligence about the stealth fighter and the stealth bomber, and in return, these these people in the U.S. would get just bogus MJ-12 documents. And so that was one of the primary aspects of the um, MJ-12 scenario. Now, for people who might think, well, no, no, the MJ-12 documents are the real deal, um, one of the things I should stress is that I managed to get quite a few of pages of the FBI's file on MJ-12. And the file is not, as you might expect, titled something like um, leaked document or potentially leaked documents, that kind of thing. The file on MJ-12 that the FBI has is actually titled espionage, so you know, which is to do with spying. So I think a good case can be made. That's telling. Yeah, I think to some degree at least... Um, the, the Russians were involved in MJ-12 and in creating fabricated documents as a means to um, to try and reel people in who might be able to, in return for being given the MJ-12 documents, would donate, if you like, that's the right term to use, you know, information on the stealth fighter and the stealth bomber before they were actually, you know, unveiled on the on the runways and whatever. Well, is that and is that because um, people in aerospace naturally would be some of the most interested in this advanced aerospace technology? So it was like, I wonder if in addition to, to this possible operation, if there were others that targeted people involved in aerospace, aerospace by using the UFO phenomenon. It seems like it would be a pretty... It would appeal to them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and I'm, and I'm sure that, you know, somebody who is in the aerospace business, you know, and there are these documents being offered by the Russians about, you know, high, highly advanced technological um, power systems from some other world, some of them just may have gone for it, you know, and, um, and just could not resist 
the the lure of well okay yeah we'll give you this but i want those mj12 documents and um that was the fbi's theory if you like the idea that um that the russians were sort of just trying to reel people in and the and the only thing they were going to give the people in the u.s was fabricated documents uh, now people might again might say well that just can't be or they may not I mean, I may not like the theory because it goes against their belief systems. But one thing I can say, it actually does make sense, you know. Absolutely. Then you also talk about the, the Soviets using the idea that, the, that UFOs are, in fact, Soviet as a way of demonstrating the superiority of Soviet technology also. Yeah, that, that was one of the other angles as well. You know, if the Russians have got spacecraft, flying saucers, UFOs that can, you know, sort of travel at 5,000 miles an hour and do left and right-hand turns without stopping, and, you know, they can blast aircraft out of the sky. You know, it doesn't really matter if the Russians had developed that kind of... Well, I say it it does matter if they did develop that kind of technology. But the fact is, even if, if they hadn't got that technology, just the fear that they had that technology would be plenty enough to just seed, you know, to sow the seeds of fear that, oh, my God, maybe the Russians really are behind the UFO phenomenon. They've had these this technology for so many years, and, you know, if it ever comes to a full-on war situation, you know, we could end up wiped out. Which yeah, they'll send the flying saucers happened. over, yeah. <laughs> And then, in yeah, addition exactly. to that, we may have been trying to perpetuate a myth that we are in contact with the aliens receiving secret technology yeah. that makes our military capability superior to them. Right, right. Yeah, and I think I think it was kind of like, you know, sort of when you're a kid and, um, you know, so my dad's bigger than, and more stronger <laughs> than your dad, you know? Space <laughs> like brothers are, are better friends with me than you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think what it comes down to is that each side was just doing what they felt they had to do to essentially create fear, hysteria, and paranoia on the part of the other side. And the the bigger that somebody came up with one scenario, the other side has to counter it with an even bigger scenario. And I think that's why so many of these stories became so controversial and bizarre because to achieve the goal they just had to keep going and going you know yeah it's the ultimate form of psychological warfare you do, what you're doing mm-hmm. is you just on, on a mass mass scale yeah um there's there's some weirdness too with the with the majestic 12 documents that you talk about in the book and that's this strange connection to that has nothing to do with ufos but this whole strange connection to like the the AIDS conspiracy theory that it was, mm-hmm. you know, manufactured by the United States and all this, but somehow that ends up in the Majestic Twelve documents. Yeah, well, th- this is probably the most controversial part of the whole book. Um, the it's important to note there were sort of three levels of the release of the doc- of the MJ Twelve documents. You had in the nineteen eighties, you had the initial. MJ-12 documents which surfaced to Bill Moore, Stan Friedman, and Jamie Chandray, and which Tim Good, as I said, under circumstances we don't really know, got his copies as well. That was the 1980s. 
Um, just a couple of years ago, there was a, another um, group of documents that surfaced. But the other, one, the other group, the third group, that really caught just about everybody's attention surfaced in the early to mid-1990s. And they were documents that were given to um, a guy named Timothy Cooper, who at the time lived at Big Bear Lake, California. Now, Tim was someone who, he a very different scenario and situation, because whereas Bill Moore and Stan Friedman got documents in the figure of like seven or eight pages, um, Tim, po uh, Tim Cooper actually got documents in the number, or collectively, of about 1,500 pages. Um, and many of them written in very different typewriters and type uh, styles, you know, demonstrating that multiple typewriters have been used, which kind of suggests that, you know, unless Cooper went out and, you know, spent a ton of money on a dozen or so vintage typewriters, which I don't believe he did, you know, I don't believe he was, you know, the faker here, but he did get his hands on a massive amount of documents. Now, this part of the story actually ties to me, as I point in the book, that um, Tim Cooper uh, received this sort of 1,000, 1,500 pages of documents, all about MJ-12 and alien autopsies, this kind of thing. He got them between the very early part of the 1990s, and, um, and he quit ufology in 2002. Now... One of the people who was really interested in the MJ-12 documents was a ufologist named Dr. Bob Wood. And it turns out that Tim sold all of his MJ-12 documents to Bob Wood. And Bob Wood, in 2002, hired me to spend about a week or so in a, a motel in um, Orange County, California, to go through all of the MJ-12 documents that Cooper had got. And some of them that I got access to have never, ever been placed into the public domain. And so it was like a weird... I kind of, in the book, I sort of parallel it between where, like in, in um, Huntress Thompson's book, um, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, you know, he's hunkered up in this um, hotel room, you know, trying to write this story in, in Las Vegas. It was kind of, that's kind of what I was doing, you know. I was sort of holed up in a motel room in Orange County with like one and a half thousand pages of alleged classified documents <laughs> on MJ-12. And you get a bit paranoid? Was, no, it was kind of cool, really. You know, I had like, um, it was arranged where, you know, the um, one of the staff would come every so often it would be like, you know, I get a bunch of sandwiches and a bunch of beer and just going through all the documents. Oh, that's so, awesome, and, dude. Uh, that's a dream come true. <laughs> so, yeah, that was a cool and almost like um, surreal kind of situation, really. But what was interesting but also disturbing and what was very different to all the MJ other MJ-12 documents is that the, the papers that Tim uh, Cooper got talked about in a number of cap in number of examples where supposedly the aliens that had been found um on like at Roswell and different places around New Mexico in the forties, supposedly some of the technicians and personnel who got close to the craft and close to the these pulverized alien bodies suddenly started to fall ill and sick under like incredibly fast times. And 
and it was described as like a, a blood-borne virus that could get into the you know the human bloodstream, and you know it would cause it could cause like a, a worldwide plague, and um, and indeed the description of this alien virus was actually not at all um, dissimilar to the the whole issue of like HIV and AIDS and how HIV you know um, can cause death if you don't have the right um, you know the right medication and so on um, now what's intriguing is that at the very same time that when um, Cooper started to get his uh, MJ12 documents this was when we know now this is a fact that the the Russians the KGB in the mid through the late 80s through the very early 90s started to spread rumors that the AIDS virus HIV was created by the US government to um, essentially um, use it as like a bacteriological warfare um, scenario now this you know this was complete bullshit this was garbage you know the the US government did not create AIDS and you know the HIV as a means to try and lower the you know the population numbers, but that was the theory that the KGB um, spread across the the country, you know, and um, and it's intriguing to find that at the very same time the KGB was spreading rumours that the United States had created HIV. This is the same time when Cooper was getting these documents talking about an alien virus that could wipe out the human race, Ooh. but which the U.S. government wanted to try and weaponize. And it was described as this blood-borne virus um, with, um, with characteristics very similar to, um, to HIV. So that's one of the things I talk about in the book is how... From my perspective, almost certainly, the the Cooper documents and all these parallels with HIV, I'm pretty sure that this was a follow-on from the, the Russians and the KGB's um, plans to try and convince people that HIV was created by the U.S. government. And, I, and it, it appears to be, at least, that this is what the Russians did. They continued this scenario yeah. and applied this issue of fabricated viruses, they applied it to the UFO phenomenon as well. That's fascinating, and that's something that didn't really take off as much in the conspiracy realm, it seems, the alien AIDS angle. You know, it just kind of <laughs> yeah. stuck to the to the government. <laughs> right. But the fact that that was going on simultaneously, yeah, that's, that's fascinating. Nick, are there any instances that you can think of that's going on now, since we're, you know, the obviously the Russians are incredibly active now. Um, so in the UFO field, do you think that there's any Russian collusion, Russian meddling going on now? Well, I, I actually do, but I think one of the problems with the field of ufology is that a lot, so many people don't want to know or want to date or don't want to deal with the idea mm -hmm. that a lot of the you know, the established UFO law, so to speak, L-O-R-E rather than L-A-W, you know, the, the, the law of ufology, a lot of people just don't want it disrupted because, frankly, a lot of the stories are exciting and they're cool to listen to and people yeah. don't want to hear that. But um, 
in terms of it still going on, I mean, there's no doubt about this. I mean, and one of the examples goes back to uh, Edward Snowden. Now, you know, I mean, I think I guess I, I should say first, you know, different people have different views on Snowden and what he did and etc. You know, different people see him as a as like a traitor. Other people see him as a you know a whistleblower and so on. So, but regardless of how you perceive and view Snowden, the fact is that, you know, in the summer of 2013, when he went public with all this massive amount of documentation talking about NSA surveillance and things like this, well, one of the, um, one of the particular documents that was released um, by Cooper, excuse me, by um, Snowden was titled, I'm quoting the title now, how covert agents infiltrate the internet to manipulate, deceive, and destroy reputations. Now, that was the title of a document, but also the title of what was essentially like a lecture given um, to, on behalf of the NSA and also GCHQ, the government headquarters in the UK, which is the GCHQ is the UK equivalent of the NSA. And we don't have the audio, unfortunately, of this lecture um, that was, as I said, was titled How Covert Agents Infiltrate the Internet to Manipulate, Deceive and Destroy Reputations. Now, what we do know is because the, the lecture was actually filmed and the PowerPoint actually shows throughout the lecture a number of images of UFOs. So this, if you look at the title, which deals with manipulation, deception, and destroying reputations on the Internet, this clearly makes it obvious that, you know, surveillance and attempts to try and affect the reputations of people in ufology have clearly gone on. And, um, you know, and just the very fact that this is a legitimate document, even though we don't have the audio, it does demonstrate that, um, you know, sort of counterintelligence and psychological warfare is still being used to this day in relation to UFOs. Absolutely. And I'd say they probably took a few uh, pages out of our book as far as uh, relig- uh, manipulating religion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And I think... I think what it all really comes, what all this kind of comes down to is that it's so easy to manipulate people. I mean, you know, like that that whole thing I mentioned with Ebola. I mean, that just took off immediately. And like I said, living down just outside, I live like about 20 minutes drive from where President Kennedy was shot, you know, so I know Dallas like the back of my hand. And, um, when that whole Ebola thing came out and, you know, the people, Dallas, you know, were going down with with Ebola, I mean, it really was kind of like, you know, sort of um, Rick Grimes and Daryl, you know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) It it really was. People were saying, you know, let's block off the roads and and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, people were saying, in a quite actually uh, real situation, you know, Ebola, actually exists in the human body for days after the person's dead. You know, it actually, they, the person remains a biological threat after death for several days. That, that is a fact. And so, but you had this almost um, walking dead type scenario. 
And, and it doesn't, what the book demonstrates, it doesn't take much to provoke and create hysteria in terms of um, affecting people's mindsets and belief systems and as to how, and how e chillingly easy, you know, people can be um, persuaded by this or by that. Right, yeah, and you, you saw that definitely with the Russian meddling in, on Facebook and social media. Mm -hmm. well, they they really appealed, yeah. they really appealed to religion, and they really appealed right. to like the sense of fear, and they really appealed to the sense the sense of panic that was uh, that was permeating, and that's a. Uh, I think that really these these tactics. I mean, it's, it's it's just basic psychological warfare. Yeah, and I mean, you know, you can see this in so many different aspects. I guess you know, I mean, uh, although I primarily you know focus in the book on UFOs, I mentioned there was this thing that really got the FBI worried about that there was possibly ten or twelve atomic bombs strategically situated in u.s cities all primed to go off together on one day and th there was it was nothing to it at all i mean another example I, I briefly mentioned in the book was that the russians spread stories in the late 40s that um that i guess the equivalent of terrorists today had infected the um the u.s cattle herd and that people were going to fall sick and ill due to some deadly virus which was in the cow uh, herds and which you know uh, beef is very you know a popular food stuff and that they would go down with it as well and again there was nothing to that but the russians figured out that you know a lot of uh, beef gets eaten in the united states well let's create a scenario where everybody's going to fall ill due to a deadly virus through eating beef oh well i, I wonder if um I just wonder if maybe that fed into some of the cattle mutilation stuff, too. Um, well, I mean, it's interesting you bring that up, because I debated as to whether or not I should do a chapter on the book. Excuse me, on that subject in the book, I should say. But I didn't actually get round to it. But I actually did wonder, you know, if um, if there was a connection and, you know, if it should be brought up in the book. But, um, you know, maybe I'll sort of address that further and sort of lengthier to another day but um but yeah i mean you, you could make a case that um you know if there was a belief that the russians had infiltrated the you know the basically the entire cattle herd um you know you could understand why possibly things like black helicopters would be flying around and checking the cattle out oh, just wow. to make sure the Russians hadn't actually, you know, <laughs> sort of um, affected them with viruses. But, um, but I mean, this sort of ties in similarly. I mean, with me growing up in England, um, you know, the whole uh, mad cow disease. I mean, when that kicked off yes. in the 80s, again, you know, there were these sort of um, apocalyptic stories, you know, that the UK is going to have to be kind of um you know just quarantined again sort of playing with movies and tv shows you know some of the stuff that was flying around in the 80s when i was a kid living out in the uk you know it was kind of like um you remember 28 days later when the yeah. uk gets quarantined by the by the uh the rage virus and um you remember that right yes yeah well in that movie 28 days later the the uk gets quarantined because of this uh, outbreak of what's called the the rage virus where people aren't zombies like the way they 
die and wake up. You know, it's just that in seconds you take on this complete state of like homicidal rage, you know. And um, but that's not dissimilar. I'm not exaggerating. You know, when I was like a kid living back in the 80s um, when Mad Cow broke out, you know, there were worries and concerns that, you know, because they didn't know when it began, that millions of people could already have Mad Cow, you know, and there could be millions and millions of people who would go down in the virus in the next few years. Um, and thankfully that didn't happen, even though it did, unfortunately, you know, jump from, um, you know, sort of uh, the cattle-based version to, to Mad Cow um, in people, that, you know, it did leap. And that's when people got really concerned. But there was also, you know, a great deal of nonsense and, and fear-mongering. And so, and that sort of, you know, nonsense and fear-mongering plays equally into the whole Russian angle of, you know, trying to mess with the mindset of, of the U.S. government. I'm I'm curious as to what some of your concerns for the the future in the manipulation and uh, mm-hmm. disinformation in the UFO phenomenon uh, for political ends, either from Russia yeah. or anyone else's. Well, I mean, from my perspective, you know, the the primary thing that the story that the book tells is of Russian manipulation. So I think the things to look out for, you know, if somebody, you know, sort of like a, a uh, like a deep throat whistleblower type character surfaces with questionable or controversial documents and there's a political slant to them, I think that's a very important thing to look out for. You know, I'm sure that with these documents, you know, if there's a political angle in the documents, then you can pretty much guarantee that political angle is there for a reason. Mm-hmm. So I think that in the future would be an important thing to look out for. And also, if you're a UFO researcher and you're someone who potentially, you know, also works in the field of the Defense Department or, you know, the intelligence community, but you happen to have a connection to your or an interest in UFOs, um, anybody who is sort of approached by someone with a vaguely foreign accent, you know, <laughs> named Dimitri or whatever, you know, um, it's things like that to look out for. Uh, you know, I, mean, I was kind of being a little bit, you know, sort of tongue-in-cheek yeah, there. The but, but I, yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, and, and I think you have to be aware of situations like that where it could be so easy to to affect the mindset, where people don't necessarily realize or think carefully enough about what they're doing. I mean, a good example would be, like, when you go to the airport to make a flight. Well, because of just what one person did, everybody, without thinking, takes their shoes off. You know, you're the shoe bomber. It was one guy and it was one event. But now... When we go to the airport, we all take our shoes off without thinking. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but what I'm saying is that scenario has been ingrained in everybody's mind where you don't even think about it. You know, it's kind of like locking your front door after you go, when you go out to work at 8 o'clock in the morning. You just lock the door and go. And that's kind of like a similar thing. We go to the airport, we just take our shoes off because of what somebody did 15 years ago or whatever it did or when it was done. 
and so it's, it shows how the the human mind can be manipulated very quickly to a point where we don't give it a second thought. And when you don't give something a second thought, then you can really find yourself in an awkward and, and dangerous situation, you know. Well, I think that's a good place to stop, Nick. Um, where can people uh, find you and also where can people get the book? Um, well, people can uh, find me at Facebook. If you type in Nick Redfern, you'll see. There's a few of us, but you'll see me if you scroll down <laughs> and a few uh, a few places. Um, people can reach me at Twitter at Nick Redfern UFO. I also have a, a blog, uh, World of Whatever. And um, also, if people interested in reading the book, uh, Flying Sources of the Kremlin, um, you can get it off the shelves um, in Barnes & Noble, and uh, you can also buy it um, on Amazon as well. Excellent, excellent, Nick. Always enjoy having you on. It's been extremely informative. Well, thanks, guys. You are Absolutely. really a wealth of knowledge. Stay on the line for us. We're going to close this section out, and we will be okay. back to close out this show on Conspiranormal. If you want your HR team to hire top talent for your company, tell them about ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology identifies people with the right skills, education, and experience, and actively invites them to apply to your company's job posts, so you get qualified candidates fast. It's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. This rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over 1,000 reviews. And right now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Conspiranormal. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Conspiranormal. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Okay, back. Welcome back to Conspiranormal, guys. So that was an interesting interview with Nick Redfern. I was... Uh, particularly glad to get his perspective on all that yeah, um, we've been wanting to do that for a little bit since those articles came out and he wrote his book yeah yeah i wanted to add something to that and it's interesting because i listened to this last night on another podcast which is the revolutions podcast mike duncan and um, he was talking he's talking about the russian revolution and he's you know going through like the pre-russian revolution era and talking about how czarist Russia actually had their agents in every yeah. capital in Europe because yeah. Russia was seen as like the bastion of conservatism and that they, if there was ever any kind of lib- quote-unquote liberal revolt, revolt Sounds they, could, familiar. they could put it down. Yeah, Sounds familiar. Yeah, yeah. it's kind of like what goes around comes around. So I thought that was pretty interesting. So this, this has been something that's been going on for a while. This is, no, this is nothing new. So it was real interesting East to get that West. point of view from uh, from Nick Redfern. And Nick is always one of our favorite guests on the show. Uh, guys, we just did a live interview with Tim Banal. And we're very who is going to be speaking at the Strange Realities Conference. Yeah, we were honored to be, at, be there as he uh, was... Uh, Talking to us about the conference and a few other a few other things about how he didn't like his iPhone 10, <laughs> and so that will be available at uh, Banal of America. That will be available at there at his uh, wherever his podcast. It's definitely is. a milestone for me. I, I listen to a yeah, lot of Banal of America. Yeah, yeah, that's how you came into some of this stuff. So it's an interesting uh, full circle. So guys, 
this is it. This is the last episode that we are going to put out before the Strange Realities Conference on we, October 19th. We sound like public television. You're probably tired of it. We don't yeah. care. Yeah. We have sold some tickets online, but it is really going to behoove you guys, especially if you are in Nashville, because we realize now there's probably not a lot of people going to be coming in from out of town. Those people have probably already bought all their tickets. But if you have not... It is $30 still pre-sale until October 18th, which is only a few days away from when we are posting this episode. It's a steal. So, guys, please get your tickets in as soon as you can. Um, Otherwise, at the door, you're going to be paying $40. We can't emphasize that enough. And we are anticipating quite a local rush, and you may just not be able to get in. That is that is a possibility. We only have like a hundred. We can only fit a hundred people in that room. So um, please try to get there as soon as you can that day. And it starts at ten o'clock, and we are going to start the ball rolling at about like ten fifteen with the first presentation. And we are going all day. So guys, emphasize again: thirty bucks pre-sale, forty dollars at the door. And come join us at the Strange Realities Conference. Yeah, so guys, uh, we still have our Patreon available, and Serfiel can tell you where that is. You can find that at patreon.com slash conspiranormal and make a one-time donation at conspiranormal.com. Again, that was strangerealitiesconference.com. Absolutely, guys. We really hope to see you there. Next time you hear this episode, we will not uh, be talking about it. Just a couple of notes. We do have music at the end of the Strange Realities Conference. We are going to have Jason Von Stein, who is actually my cousin. He is going to be playing his father's songs. And we have all the way from Indiana, from a farm just outside of Indianapolis. Goat farm. Yeah, a goat farm. We have Goat Herder going to be playing their white metal, black metal. I don't, I don't really know, but uh, they are going to be there. That's our good friend Jedediah, who is also going to be at the conference. He's bringing his entire band to entertain you guys, and we have a live DJ. And Serfio can tell you who that is. We have a very good friend of mine, Day One, DJ Mike Vulcan, playing uh, Outer Space techno and uh crazy disco and all kinds of cool futuristic stuff yeah absolutely absolutely yeah that's gonna be a good ending to the night um and very appropriate as well so guys strangerealitiesconference.com we are in the final days all right i think that's it um one mother announcement you know we have a conference going on the next episode is going to be delayed by a few days than what you're used to. But uh, this man over here, Serfiel Stevenson, he does all the <laughs> editing. He is going to be at the conference, and he's going to be there to help entertain our guests that we have the next day. So he's not going to be able to do any editing. So we are going to delay the, the shows, but uh, guys... You just had this episode with Nick Redfern. Before that, you had another episode with Guy Malone. There's plenty of episodes there. Catch up on an old one if you'd like. and Or if not, join Patreon and you'll find much more. But uh, we will be back probably in about uh, a week and a half to two weeks. 
So until then, guys, we'll talk to you later on Conspiranormal. Upgrade you to our Shred membership. For 130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.